The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Gaiad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Mr. Greg Foss, who actually did an interview not too long ago with my colleague, Mr. Dan Weisskopf, who might be able to join here. Greg, for those who are not familiar with you, introduce yourself. Who are you? Uh, what's your background? And what got you so focused on Bitcoin? Well, firstly, yeah, thanks for having me. I, I did have an a interview with Dan. Uh, I have a lot of respect for him and his uh Knowledge in the in the digital asset space, primarily Bitcoin. But uh, yeah, Michael, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a Canadian. I went to school in Canada and the United States. Huge fan of our both of our countries. But I a credit guy. Over 35 years of investing on both the buy side and the sell side of the street. So I was a high yield bond trader in uh, New York and in Canada. And then I came back to Canada and worked as a credit portfolio manager at two separate hedge funds. So I've been through my share of financial crises. I think some of the listeners who may know me know that I believe and I'm certain that credit runs the world. It's a far bigger asset class than equities. Any equity holder that owns uh, equity in a company that also has debt and does not understand where that debt trades or know where that debt trades is probably uh, investing with one arm tied behind their back. So I always come at a investment with a credit bent. Credit is larger. Credit tends to be more uh, informed, but it's also credit is an asymmetric to the downside bet. So you have to understand that credit guys are pessimists where equity guys tend to be optimists. Equity guys always think that uh, trees grow to the moon, whereas credit guys are pessimists uh, the best thing that can happen when you lend money at 100 cents on the dollar is you get your coupon back and you get your principal back. Only bad things can happen after that. If the cash flows of the company improve, they don't increase the interest coupon. That accrues to the equity holders. That is the equity share of the risk appetite. But the credit guys, you invest at 100 cents on the dollar and then the debt trades down to 60 cents on the dollar. Plenty of times the better return is actually in owning the bonds at 60 cents on the dollar than it is in the equity, which has become essentially an option. So I always come at things with an equity bent. I believe Bitcoin to be a credit derivative. We can get into that. But I would love to answer or take this conversation wherever you want. I've been through four different financial crises. Every single one has gotten worse. Every single one 
has been driven by credit and the unraveling of credit. So uh, yeah, that's where I am, sitting and watching the world unravel because of credit. Okay, so yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I like I like the way you frame that. It's about asymmetric downside risk when it comes to credit. And despite all the frustration and devastation that's happened in the bond market, what's made this year so unusual is that the devastation's largely been duration, government debt-related, as opposed to credit risk-related. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the way the bond market played out this year and if that credit risk is is kind of looming sometime next year. What a great question. So yeah, let's start with the fact that U.S. Treasury debt, which is the largest bond component of credit in the world, total global debt is $400 trillion, of which U.S. Treasury debt is just slightly over $30 trillion. So even though U.S. Treasuries is one less than one-tenth of total global debt, it is the most important component of the debt ecosystem. So your question was very well framed. Bond markets have been destroyed globally, mostly, though, because of the inflation concern component. Secondary concerns are credit components. So certainly for periphery countries that are not G20 countries, well, let's just say Turkey excluded. Turkey is a G11 country. Countries that don't have credit risk tend to trade predominantly on the inflation expectations. And those markets, the G7 markets in general, have been destroyed this year because of increased inflationary concerns. But let's be very clear, Michael. The U.S. Treasury is not risk-free, okay? Credit risk-free. Because if it was, the credit default swap market on U.S. government debt would not exist. But the reality is there is a well-developed, credit default swap market on sovereign debt of G7 nations, which are indicating increased levels of stress or concern from a credit perspective. If the US, again, was credit risk-free, there would be no people out there buying protection or insurance against the default of the United States. There is, the market is 25 basis points for five-year insurance on US Treasury debt. So don't ever tell me that the U.S. credit, U.S. Treasury is credit risk-free. It's credit risk low, but it is not credit risk-free. And I need to remind everybody that credit trades as a contagion asset. So sometimes people reach up the risk spectrum, meaning less risky assets, to purchase protection to hedge against something like a default of a financial institution that's going to be bailed out by the U.S. Treasury. So we could get into all of that. But remember, this year's predominant destruction in credit markets was due to inflation expectations, not due to credit expectations. But I'm going to a- answer your final question. I think that credit concerns for sovereign debt will become front and center before long, and people will forget the inflation narrative and start focusing on the reality that if the U.S. Treasury was rated like a corporation, i.e. it couldn't print its money, the U.S. Treasury would be rated triple C, purely based on an EBITDA interest coverage ratio comparison to what they call zombie companies. Well, the U.S. is a zombie country because its credit metrics are worse than zombie countries, excuse me, zombie companies defined as having less than one turn of EBITDA interest expense 
ratio. The USA is in exactly that point, ladies and gentlemen, except they can print their own money. Well, it's called a debt spiral, soon to turn into a death spiral, because it's 100% certain the only way the U.S. Treasury can satisfy their interest expense obligations is by printing more money. That's grade 11 math. Don't argue with grade 11 math. It's about as simple as it gets. The U.S. Treasury debt is going to explode globally purely because of the interest expense and increased interest expense obligations. That will lead to increased credit concerns, Michael, which will lead to wider credit default swap spreads, which will translate into contagion to all periphery markets, high yield, global sovereign debt, continued as a function of where the U.S. Treasury goes. Yeah, no, no. And, and actually, that's, that's where I wanted to go, because I always go back to the example of 2011, when S&P downgraded U.S. credit quality from AAA to AA+. The reaction uh, on that was that long-duration yields fell, that there was still a flight to safety trade back then, while the stock market collapsed and credit spread started widening at the same time, because I agree with you, it's, there clearly is default risk, although you can argue there isn't just because you can print money, but you print money with inflation, it's still a form of default, you can argue, on a real return basis. But you know, because the government owns our shit through taxation, if the U.S. government's you know, fucked, we're all fucked. I love your analogy. I call it a soft de- default, okay? So don't ever tell me the USA hasn't defaulted on their debt because 1971 was a default, okay? They broke a contract. So you can argue, yes, I'll get paid back, and it's not a hard default. The reality is Venezuelans also got paid back, and it wasn't a hard default. It's just that their money ended up in the trash can because it was worth less than the paper it was printed on, okay? I'm not arguing that is happening quickly to the U.S. Treasury, but it's not a zero probability risk. Again, look at the credit default swap markets to analyze what the risk probabilities are of that event happening. And Michael, I'm not calling for the end of the USA in short order. But there's a lot of other countries that will fail before the USA Treasury fails. And the contagion will roll uphill, meaning it'll roll to better credits than their credits. And here's a really funny thing. I love your analogy of 2011, where uh, the US, uh, S&P downgraded uh, the US Treasury to AA+. That's one notch below AAA, still almost gilt edge. Canada, which has far worse credit metrics then the U.S. Treasury is still rated AAA. But if you want truth, go to the credit default swap markets and realize that Canada, my home country, is actually trading much closer to a single A credit, which is multiple levels of uh, notches of credit quality below the U.S. Treasury. So while S&P still has Canada rated as a better credit than the U.S. Treasury, The markets are telling you a vastly different story, and in my opinion, rightly so, because our country is managed by a buffoon who says stuff like, budgets will balance themselves. Well, if the CEO of a company said that the budget of a company would balance itself, he'd be fired on the spot. However, if you're a prime minister, you're allowed to say that stuff, and people lap it up as if it means nothing. Well, it does mean stuff understand that credit quality is an overriding concern in every single investment process that you'll ever make, and you better understand where credit markets are going. So S&P has U.S. Treasury rated one notch below uh, Canada. That is an abomination of a responsibility as far as I'm concerned. So I'm with you on on that. I've sounded the alarm on a sovereign debt crisis earlier in the year, just given the way the dollar was acting, and then 
you know, dollars corrected then, you know, so far less, you know, whatever, six, six to eight weeks. Uh, but if the dollar does resume, obviously that puts more pressure uh, on that tail risk. Do you think that there's maybe a um, part of the Fed's subconscious that wants to see some kind of global sovereign event? And I say that because I've made this point before, inflation is a process, deflation is usually an event, right? That's usually credit driven. Seems to me that the fastest way to get back to two percent is to have some kind of an event. Wow, you know, I, I hate to be a doom and gloomer. I, I won't say it's a zero probability that that could be their game plan, but I do believe that a globally or a systemically important financial institution, a SIFI, uh, will be the shoe to fall that causes the Fed to have to pivot, regardless of their desire to fight inflation. So I've seen it in the long-term capital management crisis. I've seen it, obviously, in the great financial crisis. COVID response just kicked the can down the road further, such that this financial crisis, where all the risk has been kicked uphill to the government balance sheets, yeah, that'll be what causes it. I I can't say it will be a plan, Michael. It would be too nefarious for me to to accuse them of that, but I think it'll be the result. You don't have to look any farther than a globally important financial institution like Credit Suisse with a market cap of uh, slightly over $10 billion and true risk on their balance sheet of many, many, many multiples of that from a mark-to-market risk perspective. I mean, Credit Suisse is insolvent. It's a regular occurrence within the banking industry that the whole industry goes insolvent. I got my start, some of you may know, during the great, uh, excuse me, during the LDC debt crisis in 1988. And the entire banking system was insolvent in 1988 because of the Latin American debt crisis. Well, these are like buses. They go by on a regular basis in the cycle. And I think that'll be the shoe to fall. It'll be a systemically important financial institution like Credit Suisse that has counterparty risk to every other financial institution in the market. And when one side of a counterparty fails, it just causes a domino effect and somebody has to come in and rescue the system. So yes, it'll be deflationary. Is it what I want to happen? No, but in my opinion, Bitcoin is your insurance against that. And that's why Bitcoin is so key. Bitcoin is actually, in my analysis, credit insurance. It's a long volatility asset. So understand this, people. It's actually a long volatility asset in a sea of short volatility assets. So if you're long equities, you're short volatility. If you're long credit, you're short volatility. If you're long Bitcoin, my thesis is that you are long volatility, but the market still treats it as a short vol asset. They haven't done their homework to understand that owning Bitcoin is actually like owning credit insurance on a basket of fiat issuing countries. And here's the crux. Yeah, the DXY is a great little donkey, okay? The DXY is a great little donkey but it's still the best looking donkey at the glue factory. They're all melting ice cubes. You got to understand that just because the DXY is increasing in value relative to other melting ice cubes, they're all melting. It's just different rates of decay. And that's the mathematics behind fiat currencies and why you should own, in my opinion, a portion of your portfolio in the beautiful instrument called Bitcoin, which is like a credit insurance product, or once again, a long product. I know you get it. Most people in the world don't understand what a long ball asset is because they don't really exist that often. I also don't think a lot of people understand what portion means, right? I mean, I mean, so this is, I think, been, and this has kind of been a little bit of my war of the last 
year and a half, two years, I always go back to this point. It's not about what you own. It's about how much you own of it. I do think that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, there was this feeling for a long time that if you believed in Bitcoin and you were a quote-unquote maximalist, that meant you have to had you had to have nearly all of your liquid assets in Bitcoin, and that that argument was pushed around by a lot of you know call them influencers or whatever you want to call it in the space. Um, and you and I both know that's dangerous because yes, it's I hear you on being long ball, but there's still the purchasing power volatility that comes from you know a nascent technology like this. When you say portion and it's not financial advice, how should one evaluate that portion? A part of the equation, because this is where I think it gets really tricky for those that believe in it, but have to limit how much their belief factors into actual dollars. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. What a great question. So I'll, I'll, I'll answer the question as I always do in a bit of a long-winded way, but I hope that you, you'll bear with me. So I'm a risk manager by training. I have never been 100% exposed to any investment in my whole life. That would be just pure foolishness in terms of risk management and probabilities and the like. So let's start with this. Firstly, I believe Bitcoin belongs in every portfolio at an allocation of greater than zero. So if you own 0% Bitcoin, I think your portfolio is actually exposed to greater risk than if you have a proper portfolio allocation. And I define a proper portfolio allocation, and this includes institutional, retail, high net worth, any investor in the world. I define that as between zero or greater than zero and less than 5% of your total global net worth or portfolio. Why is that the right answer? First of all, because it is an asset that you don't need to participate in it at greater than 5% exposure to reap the gains of the asymmetry of the upside of that investment, okay? So it's the beautiful asymmetric upside exposure, and you don't need to be 100% invested in that upside exposure to reap the gains that a hundredfold increase in its value would bring to the table. So my answer to you is, if you own zero, you own the wrong amount. Own more than zero, and for the traditional risk-averse investor, yes, I'll use the word risk-averse, own up to 5%. And then that 5% treat as insurance on your portfolio, and then worry about what the other 95% of your traditional assets are doing, and think of the 5% as your portfolio insurance against the whole fiat system unraveling. And I don't want the fiat system to unravel overnight, but I will clarify. I am a Bitcoin maximalist in the context of digital assets. I do not own any other digital asset. In fact, I'd be short other digital assets against Bitcoin. But I don't argue for anyone to own 100% in anything. Okay. 
the beautiful thing about Bitcoin, and we could get to my price target, the market is telling me right now that the that I have a one percent chance of being right with my price target, Michael. And I'm like, I'm not a hundred percent certain, but I'll tell you, I'm far more certain than a one percent value or a one percent likelihood. So therefore, I'm a buyer of Bitcoin at these levels, and I'm a buyer up to a maximum exposure in my portfolio, which is greater than five percent. But I think I've done the homework to warrant a greater than five percent exposure. But I also own gold. I also own silver. I also own real estate. And yes, I own U.S. dollar cash. Why? Because that's what a balanced risk managed portfolio looks like. And I'm short selective equities. I'm short selective assets. And I own volatility in other ways. So that's what a good portfolio manager does, which I know you and Dan can ap appreciate when you risk balance a portfolio. Please leave me, or if you'll allow me to leave you with this, the wrong exposure to Bitcoin is 0%. You make a proper risk allocation based on your risk uh, absorbing tendencies. Mine right now, if I had to give you a number, is between 15 and 20% of my net worth, which I'm very comfortable with. Partially, it's, it's there because of the capital appreciation since I got involved in Bitcoin. And part of it is because I'm adding more at these levels. Why? Because I think the certainty of my thesis coming together is higher than it was when I first got involved in Bitcoin in 2016. In 2016, Bitcoin was under $1,000 US in price. And I got involved in it for exactly the reasons I'm involved now as insurance on the fiat system. But the funny thing is, it's a better investment today at the price it's trading at today. Why? Well, because it's six years older in life, its technology has been proven, its survivability has been proven, its adoption has been proven. But most importantly, the reaction of central governments around the world is exactly what I've been worried about. And they're proving themselves to be horrible risk managers at the central bank level. So therefore, the value of Bitcoin is actually greater today on a risk-adjusted basis than it was when I got involved at under $1,000. I hope that makes sense to people. Yeah, and I will say for those that that I think incorrectly assume I'm anti-Bitcoin, I'm anti-narrative. And I will say for whatever it's worth that I agree with you, Greg. I mean, I've said that many times before. I said, you know, treat it for what it is. It's something that could be something a lot more, which means have some portion that makes a lot of sense to me intuitively. And even if I put my CFA charter hat on, the definition of the market means all assets. It's not just stocks. So even from that perspective, yeah, one should certainly, I think, consider having the a portion, right? I think that's that's important. I, that's why I keep going back to the. I find oftentimes the the arguments that I see with the pro Bitcoin versus anti Bitcoin crowd is more about waiting as opposed to what Bitcoin's trying to achieve. So don't forget a lot of these. Uh, and look, I'm I'm a Bitcoin maxi, as I said, only because I believe it to be the only digital asset that solves the fiat Ponzi. Okay, defined supply, decentralized. Ask Vitalik what the supply of Ethereum is, and he'll say, "Well, it's difficult to uh, to tell you." Uh, that's not what I'm looking for in a in the in a scarcity product. So I am a Bitcoin maxi in the context of other digital assets. I think you laid it out beautifully. Uh, it's a it's a game of probabilities and playing probabilities. I want to be clear to the listeners that I have a price target in today's dollars on Bitcoin of over two million U.S. dollars per Bitcoin in today's dollars, and I can tell you how I get to that. It's not that difficult. But at the end of the day, when the market is trading at less than twenty thousand, 
US dollars per Bitcoin in today's dollars, 20,000 divided by 2 million is 1% or less than 1%. Like I say, there's only a one 100% certain trade in the world, and that is that fiat currencies will continue to debase. Other than that, you need to have portfolio probabilities and odds that are set up according to expected value outcomes. And I just think Bitcoin is extremely cheap at these levels. That being said, the Bitcoin maxis that are on Twitter, they don't manage diversified portfolios, Michael. They've never managed money for other people. They don't know the pressure of sitting in a risk chair. Oh, and by the way, for them, having 100% exposure in an asset class like Bitcoin probably makes sense if they're that committed to it because they don't have really other assets, material other assets that they need to protect. I don't, I don't disparage them for that. That's the reality of being you know, a group of younger kids that have never accumulated generational wealth or family wealth. And there's a lot of different people, particularly out in the institutional square, that will look at Bitcoin. Bitcoin's worth, what, $350 billion right now? They'll only be allowed to look at Bitcoin when it reaches a trillion or $2 trillion market caps. That's the reality of big money versus small money. And I'm just trying to give advice for all investors, big or small, how to manage risk according to my experience. I hope that makes sense. I've been on record, even on your show, um, as saying that Bitcoin mining as a standalone business is actually a pretty horrible business. You define to me a business where you don't control your energy input costs or your input costs, predominantly energy, and you don't control your output revenue because that's set by the market. I'll tell you that's a pretty you know, bad business model. And unfortunately, that's the model of most publicly traded Bitcoin miners because they do not control their energy assets. I believe, and I'm on record as stating this, that the future of Bitcoin mining is going to be utilities owning and mining Bitcoin, not necessarily owning, but certainly mining Bitcoin as a load balancing, grid stabilizing asset. So I'm in the energy business. The reality is Bitcoin mining when you own your own energy assets, is a really good business. It protects your downside because you have the value of your energy asset and it maintains the asymmetry to the upside because when you're not, let's say, peaking to grid and getting paid a lot of money to peak power to the grid because the grid needs power, you're mining Bitcoin with assets that would otherwise be depreciating time but not earning revenue. Well, enter Bitcoin mining. Stage, enter stage right. What a beautiful solution. And I think you're seeing this with announcements out of Japan by TEPCO, which is the largest utility in Japan. They're going to mine Bitcoin using their spare capacity when the grid does not need the capacity. So I don't think Bitcoin mining is going to be satisfied by miners that don't own their own energy assets okay that is those those companies are are being let's call them uh creatively destroyed the creative destruction of capitalism is happening with the publicly traded bitcoin miners right now it's unfortunate it is a process that makes the system more healthy over time but i think that will lead to energy companies filling the gap even companies like gridless which is based in africa which is sponsored by um, uh, Jack Dorsey, amongst others, which are helping African villages 
electrify themselves because they mine Bitcoin with a uh, the power of a river that otherwise was not e- economically economical to do and build that infrastructure. But because of the Bitcoin component satisfying some of their cash flow generations, they are now able to power villages in Africa. That is a form, albeit on a much smaller basis, of a utility which owns its own energy and therefore can peak to grid and also mine Bitcoin to defray the capital costs. So I think that's the future. I hope it doesn't cause too much pain to the remaining publicly traded that Bitcoin miners. But the reality is that was a bad business model to start with, in my opinion. I don't want to criticize them. The markets funded them. Markets are what markets are. Long live Bitcoin and fiat. Uh, And I put that purposely there because you can argue that the devil needs needs God and God needs the devil, right? Um, I want to hear your thoughts on one of these arguments that's out there, which is that Bitcoin is inevitable, fiat will die, and uh, the entire world is going to change on whatever time frame versus the idea that both maybe exist uncomfortably next to each other. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. So I'm a, a firm believer in the second half of that argument. Not all fiat currencies will exist next to next to digital assets, but perhaps over time, and when I define that, longer than my lifetime, meaning it'll take at least 30 years, in my opinion, for hyper-Bitcoinization to occur, uh, which means there are no other fiat currencies. Uh, I don't care. I'm, I'm planning for the future and for the future of my kids of a dual parallel system in which Bitcoin doesn't replace the US dollar as global reserve currency. What Bitcoin essentially replaces is US treasury assets as global reserve asset. But that doesn't mean necessarily the death of the US dollar. And even if it does mean the death of the US dollar over the next period of 30 years plus, what it certainly means is that the Canadian dollar has died a decade before the US dollar. And the likely outcome is a couple of global reserve currencies, and we could pick them, but the US dollar will definitely be one of them. And then Bitcoin as a store of value asset, just think your savings account versus your checking account. And then think of the countries that are going to have to use currencies that are pegged to the US dollar, which are then therefore de facto US dollar exposure to avoid barter in a global trade scenario. So fiat currencies are very good at having to avoid barter. They're not so good in storing value. Why? Because mathematically, we know they get debased. It's 100% certain with the fiat debasement and the debt spiral. So US treasuries will exist. Bitcoin will exist. And over time, Bitcoin will replace US treasuries, in my opinion, as the global reserve asset. But it doesn't happen overnight. It's a process that will take decades. And it should take decades because we don't want the world to lose 
the US dollar overnight, I promise you it would be a far uglier world than the current world we're living in. So anyone who wants the death of the US dollar, well, that doesn't line up with my thesis. And I think you should reconsider your wishes because as you said eloquently, the devil needs something and something needs the devil. So I agree with that. Yeah, the, the God needs the devil and the devil needs God, right? It's kind of, kind of the idea. I, I forget who it was I had on a space, but brought up a point that I don't know if it was conspiratorial, but I can see it being somewhat true that perhaps the regulators have been slow to the cryptocurrency space because they're threatened by it. They knew that there was a risk that these shit coins would cause you know, massive losses, and they wanted the losses to take place to reaffirm their existing influence and power. Do you think that's far-fetched that this is the delay in sort of real regulatory actions or reform was purposeful, or is it more just what we typically see from uh, government officials, which is uh, ineptitude? <laughs> you know, I like to learn uh, when I'm on, on this, this space here. So I'm going to flip the question back to you, if you will, because I don't have an opinion on that. I will tell you it's a possibility. I think it's a low possibility because I think that they're more inept than they are having a, a global game plan. But is it possible? Yeah, it's possible, but I'd say less than a 5% likelihood that that was their game plan. What do you think? I mean, I, I, I'd i like to hear your views. I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I think, uh, look, the entire space, um, the entire move up happens so quickly. And just like we saw with SPF eventually getting arrested, right? People thought, well, why is he not arrested yet? Because, you know, there's a lot of bureaucratic nonsense and red tape that, that takes place, right? When... It should have been so obvious he should have been arrested, you know, uh, like a month ago, right? I, I, suspe <laughs> I suspect that they're, they're not necessarily uh, unhappy about what's happened in this space, even though, you know, the role of regulators is ultimately to protect investors, you can argue. But I don't think they're necessarily sad about it. I think it, it's unfortunate. Uh, candidly, I would put much more blame on uh, the prior management of Twitter. Uh, because I think a large part of the scams and all the nonsense that we saw last year when it came to the shit coins was really driven by bots that just were unfettered in, in the way they manipulated emotion. Wow, that's that's an amazing insight. So look, uh, again, thank you for that, because I learned that viewpoint that I hadn't considered before. Yeah, look, there's, there's Bitcoin and then there's crypto. Uh, we can call it Bitcoin and then there's shit coins, of course. I, I need people to understand that there perhaps will be other digital assets that have value. But for me, the primary use of Bitcoin is to hedge against the fiat Ponzi. And it's the only digital asset that does that. Okay. Um, as a credit guy, I can give you a valuation of Bitcoin based off of the credit default swap spread of the United States Treasury or the USA government rather. Um, and all of these things provide me comfort with the intrinsic value of Bitcoin having intrinsic value because of the network, having intrinsic value because of the insurance qualities, having intrinsic value because of the long volatility aspect of the asset class. But I'm not going to go out there and tell you that, you know, the USA would be wrong. I actually think the USA would be right to embrace Bitcoin as a national defense issue. And there's certain people in the space that'll go unnamed because they'll call me a spook working in concert with another spook it's trying to infiltrate the Bitcoin community. It's pure mathematics, people, that if you have the best store of value in the world and you own the most of it, your currency is going to be the strongest global currency. And I think that if the USA embraced Bitcoin for the store of value properties it has, it could 
ensure the survival of the USA fiat currency as global reserve currency for many, many decades and even centuries to come. It's like the gold standard, but it's much more controlled. It's much more decentralized and it's much more auditable, auditable, meaning you can audit like an accounting audit as to the pure supply of where Bitcoin lives around the world. That's unlike gold. And again, I'm not anti-gold. I'm not saying you should sell your gold to own Bitcoin. Where should you allocate your 1% to 5% allocation from to Bitcoin? It should come out of your bond portfolio, people. Bonds are mathematically programmed to debase. It's the worst investment I've ever seen. Even if you know you're going to get your money back, you lend money to the U.S. Treasury today at 3.7% and you invest $100. And in 10 years, you'll get your money back with the 3% coupon, 3.7% yield. But guess what? Your money will be worth 65 cents of the original 100 cents that you invested. That's not a great investment, even though it is defined as a risk-free asset. I'm sorry, you can't convince me of that. And I've spent my entire career in bonds. Bond math is very difficult. Being an idiot doesn't mean you should be in bonds, okay? Or learn the math, go forward and divest your true risk. For all the El Salvador haters out there that have lost money on their Bitcoin investment, and they're applauding that. So I'm talking about the IMF. I'm talking about Peter Schiff. I'm talking about uh, uh, that professor at, uh, in Washington there. I'm forgetting his name right now. But at the end of the day, remember this. Bitcoin has been a godsend to El Salvador because their top line, their GDP, which is $28 billion, which is not large, but for a country of 6 million people, they have a $28 billion uh, gross domestic product. Their GDP is up 10%, which is $2.8 billion increase. That's pretty good in the context of global economies that aren't growing anywhere near that fast. And the reason that it's up is because of tourism and increased investment by Bitcoiners around the world. And you got to understand that that's meaningful for a country like El Salvador. So $2.8 billion to the revenue line GDP, if you put a 20% tax rate on that, that's uh, $560 million increased tax revenue. And they've lost $50 million on their Bitcoin portfolio. So, oh my God, they're up still over half a billion dollars, right? $560 million positive minus $50 million on a mark-to-market basis, but they haven't sold their Bitcoin yet. That's been a good trade for the country. If I was managing that country, I'd say that was a good decision. With respect to the Bitcoin bonds, okay, that's a bit more of a pipe dream, in my opinion. It's not a unlikely event. But for that to properly come to market is going to depend on a lot of other risk factors that don't just include Bitcoin. And for us to assume that El Salvador is going to lead the world on a Bitcoin bond uh, agenda would be a little bit of a far-fetched assumption, in my opinion. Because don't forget, despite the fact that it's a country of 6 million people and 28 billion GDP, that's still less than the GDP of the greater Miami area. I would suggest the mayor of Miami, who's also a Bitcoiner, releases a Bitcoin-based Miami bond and see how that goes first, because they have an incredible amount of other resources outside of Bitcoin to make sure that bond is a success. So I would encourage the municipality of Miami, I know it's not a municipality, but they issue municipal debt, I would encourage them to consider a Bitcoin bond 
Uh, El Salvador should do it as well. But if you really want a litmus test, it'll be when a municipality like Miami does it. And it will be so successful, it won't be funny. But it'll also be set by global market forces that aren't confined to IMF uh, headlines and all that shit. Okay, the IMF is a wrecking ball. It's unbelievable what they've done. It's like they want El Salvador to fail because if El Salvador succeeds, they don't have their control over El Salvador. What a pathetic institution. I shouldn't go any farther except to say there's people's lives at risk here. I'm voting for El Salvador. I've been there, visited, beautiful country, a land of hope. I want them to succeed. And if a Bitcoin bond is in their future, I'll do everything I, ha- I can to help it succeed, including probably buying some of it as a notional or a symbolic investment. But as far as an investment, as it being better than pure Bitcoin, uh, that'll depend on the structure of the product. And we haven't seen how it's structured yet. So the reality is, look, as the information changes, you change your thesis. uh, And if you're wrong, the best thing you do is you reverse your thesis and admit your mistake. Uh, All I say, tongue in cheek, is the only thing I bring to the table is 35 years of mistakes, right? But the only reason I've survived for 35 years is because I manage those mistakes and don't let them kill me. So I don't become stubborn. I realized that I was wrong and I either sell or I did not have a big enough position to it for it to matter. So if your portfolio is exposed 5% to Bitcoin and it goes to zero, which I don't think it will, I, you know, I can live with that risk. If you have 100% of your portfolio in Bitcoin and it goes to zero, well, that's a poor risk management decision. So what do I look for to tell me that my thesis has changed? I look for governments to actually act responsibly. Has that happened? Not in your lifetime. So your, fact, thesis, your thesis will never change. <laughs> thank you on that. Except, except here. Then the other things that do change. Adoption, Michael. This is the key. So Fidelity, which everybody on this call should know who they are, they have a valuation of Bitcoin based on an adoption. And they compare that adoption rate to the cell phone. And they compare that adoption rate to the internet. And based on the growth of the of Bitcoin adoption globally, they have a price target in, of Bitcoin of a million dollars US by the year 2030, okay? So eight years, seven years down the road now. That may change as the adoption changes, but so far, adoption is actually exceeding those other two. And I'm comfortable saying with things like Lightning and technologies that are built on the base layer and and new uh, um, applications that will change people's lives globally, that adoption will continue to increase. So I look for adoption. Measuring Bitcoin in fiat dollars is sort of like measuring gold in U.S. dollars only. You know, gold in Aussie dollars is hitting all-time highs. Gold in Turkish lira is hitting all-time highs, okay? It's just not hitting all-time highs in U.S. dollars because the U.S. dollar wrecking ball is causing all emerging markets to crater. So, I guess I would say two things, Dan. It's global adoption of the technology and then measuring Bitcoin, not necessarily in U.S. dollars, because I'm afraid to tell you, U.S. guys, that most of the world doesn't live in the USA. The people that are going to get the most benefit from Bitcoin actually live in countries that don't, that materially underperform the performance of the U.S. dollar on a regular basis, except their citizens either don't have access to U.S. dollars or are forbidden from owning the U.S. dollar as protection. So all of these cases, if I'm in the USA, only USA-centric, 
look towards adoption. And then if I'm globally, look towards the destruction of your own fiat currency first and see if Bitcoin has maintained and exceeded your store of value expectations. And then also look at the adoption. Places like Africa, I, I joke, sorry to digress, but I joke in Canada that we better get Bitcoin on our balance sheet or Canadians would be wise to start learning Spanish because El Salvador will surpass Canada as an area of importance in the, in the uh, Americas, okay? Why? Canada is only the size of California. In fact, Canada is less important to the world on a GDP basis than California. So don't overthink the difference between living in the United States versus living in other countries that don't even have a portion of the wealth and the diversification of the USA. So I guess it depends where you live. It depends, most importantly, on the global adoption. Obviously, it would depend upon if the Bitcoin blockchain was ever hacked. But until then, I'm a buyer, I'm a hodler, and I think I'm going to where you are. When would I start selling my Bitcoin because I own too much of it? Well, I traded Bitcoin all the time. I have taken sales in Bitcoin. Why? Because my currently between 15 and 20% exposure at one time got up to close to 50% exposure. And guess what? I don't need 50% exposure to Bitcoin in order to participate in the upside. So I did take some sales and God forbid the Bitcoin maxis come after me because at least I have a bid now where I'm replacing sales from higher levels, but I don't do it on 100% of my stack. I do it on a risk adjusted basis. When the information changes, when the price changes, I adjust my portfolio accordingly. I hope that helps. I'm going to have a little back and forth fun with you on this because you use that term store of value. And if anybody's been following my feed for the last two years, they know that I keep on poking fun at that terminology. The moment you lose definitions, you lose society, right? Things have to be defined properly. Um, a store of value is something that has a very predictable path, independent of time frame. I would argue does not have tail risk because if you have right or left tail risk and extreme, it can't be predictable. And that's the nature of having that kind of a, a distribution pattern. Do you think that just in general, and I know you don't speak for the entire Bitcoin community, do you think that definitions need to kind of be be more properly fleshed out? I mean, we can argue that Bitcoin might be a store of value in the future if it really d does have collapsing volatility that stays low. But as long as volatility, whether it's in fiat against purchasing power, whatever it is, is there, it's still an investment, not not a store of value that you can have confidence in. What a great question again. Uh, okay, I'm going to ask you this in a different way. Does your insurance that you own on your house have value? And secondly, do you, do you trade that insurance down to zero, even if you've never had a house fire? Do you sell that insurance down to zero? I would argue that's the same thing that Bitcoin is. Again, I like to think of Bitcoin as insurance and therefore has value in, an, in a scenario that I actually am not certain I want to come true, which is the global collapse of fiat currencies. It's coming. I'm 100% certain it's coming. I'm just not certain about when to time it. So here's, here's my answer to you, uh, Michael. I calculate the intrinsic value of Bitcoin using credit default swap spreads on a basket of fiat currencies. And I'm going to run through some really quick math with you guys. And if I lose you, I'm afraid I, I, I guess you guys failed grade 11 math. So don't insult yourself by telling me that you don't understand this. Five-year CDS on the United States is 25 basis points. 
I would argue that if you wanted to own, now that's five basis points a year. It's called a tenor cal. I would argue if you wanted to own 20-year default insurance on the USA, if that contract traded, it would trade for five basis points a year or at least 100 basis points, which is 1%, okay? You would be paying 1% to insure yourself against the collapse of the US government and tre treasury and the entire country. You'd be paying 1%. Now, you'd be paying it to who? And you would argue, well, who's going to pay me on that insurance con contract if the whole world uh, defaults? Well, the truth is, let's not worry about that because Bitcoin has no counterparty risk. That's why it's so valuable as insurance. But stick with me. A 20-year 1% contract on the outstanding obligation of the U.S. Treasury, which includes $31 trillion of funded debt and $170 trillion of unfunded debt, so a total of $200 trillion, means that only on the United States, a beautiful insurance contract would have a value of at least 1% times $200 trillion. What is that? That's $2 trillion. Well, the value of Bitcoin today is currently only trading at $350 billion, and I can show you a valuation metric on only one fiat of over $2 trillion of pure value. And it's trading at one-seventh of that. You get all other countries in the world for free protection by owning Bitcoin. I'll argue that that is insurance, valuable insurance that I want to own because the value of that insurance is not correctly reflected in its fiat dollar price. And I'm okay with that as a store of value where I don't have to put all my value in one asset in order to experience the upside potential of Bitcoin. So to be clear, Bitcoin isn't only worth $2 trillion, but that's one valuation metric that I use. I actually see Bitcoin as being worth far more in time than $2 trillion US dollars, but that's what a market does and allows you to seek value and place value in things like insurance. So insurance is my store of value for Bitcoin, Michael. I hope that helps. I, I still have some intellectual issues with it, but, but I think that's closer to maybe a proper way of maybe framing it. But but to your point, the thing is, at least with insurance on a home, it's contractual, you know, and there's plenty of precedent. The, the assumption there, which is, I'm, I'm down with your argument, but my only pushback would be the assumption is that it's insurance that pays out, and we have no real proof of that, because if you have proof of that, it'd be the end of the world anyway. Yes, sir. I, I, I can't argue with it. But again, I'll stress, it has no counterparty risk, because there's no intermediary that has sold you the insurance. The insurance is the coin and the scarcity and the, uh, the store of, uh, you know, I call it store value itself. Remember the great financial crisis, and I was trading then, I actually owned a lot of default protection on the systemically important financial institutions, but I didn't own them outright as insurance. I owned them against insurance on other trades. For example, if I had bought insurance on Lehman Brothers from Bear Stearns, and I knew Lehman was going to default, but I wasn't certain if Bear Stearns would default to be able to honor my insurance policy on Lehman Brothers, what did I have to do? I had to run out and insure my insurance policy. What a goofy fucking system, right? But Bitcoin doesn't have any of that counterparty risk. That's why it's so beautiful. And that's why I have comfort saying to you, I don't. I know we don't have precedence, but I do have comfort knowing I'm not going to be part of a Fiat Ponzi contagion scheme. I like mathematics. I'm an engineer by training. I believe that math runs the world. In fact, math is the base layer of language. I can explain that on another pod if you want. But here, here's what I, I look at. 
There are no guarantees in life. That's why you're a risk manager. I'll just come back to the fact that I am actually 100% certain that fiat money will continue to debase because we've painted ourselves into a debt spiral from which there is no escape or at least no escape that's palatable to most of the world. If you're running the world to destroy China and you're fine destroying all your citizens in the way that you want to destroy China as well, if you're a madman in the central bank chair of the Fed, meaning that Powell's actually smarter than he looks and he's running the world to destroy the yuan and he's running the world so that the US dollar hegemon continues, uh, that's potentially a, a, an outcome. But I actually don't think that's the, the game plan. So fiat money is 100% certain to, de to, to uh, debase. That's the mathematics, grade 11 math. So you own hard assets that are going to benefit from that. Uh, Michael has been out uh, with some of his thoughts on oil, with some of his thoughts on treasuries. So oil is a hard asset. Gold is a hard asset. Bitcoin is a hard asset. U.S. treasuries are soft assets that are getting softer. Okay, I'm just going to put my money on the math that fiat money is 100% certain to debase. And I want to own hard assets, of which Bitcoin is one of them. And I'll let you guys manage the risk in your portfolio of that exposure. I can't tell you how to do it because everybody is different. All I will say is Bitcoin belongs in the hard asset silo. And everybody over time is going to understand this because U.S. Treasury bonds are going to be overwhelmed by their interest expense obligation, which currently exceeds the military budget, by the way. And it's on its way to exceeding the entire revenue of the United States. If you want exposure to that, sign yourself up to the worst investment in history. It's called U.S. Treasury bonds. Over and out, I guess I would just say this. You can trade U.S. Treasuries, but I would never want to own them as a pure store of value in the fiat system long term. That's with 35 years of experience because inflation concerns are one thing. But credit is what runs the world. Hopefully, it's a good way to end the conversation, Michael. Credit runs the world, and U.S. credit concerns are going to continue to increase as the irresponsibility of continuing to expand their budget and having increased interest expense because of inflation-fighting technology, which is only, the only thing they have is raising interest rates. It's pure mathematics that the debt spiral will accelerate, and you better have a guarantee against that, which includes some hard assets, and some of those hard assets better be Bitcoin. Yeah, and no, I'll end real quick by saying, because I'm with you on the trading point, I'm, I've never once advocated for treasuries from a buy and hold perspective, uh, but just from a risk off in a sequence of high volatility perspective, uh, I always go back to this line I keep saying, opportunity always exists when the crowd thinks it knows an unknowable future. Uh, and it seems like a lot of people are convinced that Santa is here uh, I think we're about to find out that that's probably not true. So with that said, I'm doing another space at uh, 3 Eastern. Uh, stay tuned for that. Thank you, Greg. And everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Happy holidays. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. 
please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.